0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network.
1: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions' world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. It's time we talked about zombies. Yes, the ubiquitous undead. They have a long, proud, and sometimes not so proud history in books, films, and television. For most of the world, their first exposure to the zombie was the Haitian undead of white zombie, who tilled the sugar fields, free labor without complaints about long hours or low pay. They were the recently undead, reanimated by voodoo or other magic. The zombie of yore was slow-moving, mindless, but not particularly dangerous. It was George Romero who changed the face of the movie zombie in 1968 with his Night of the Living Dead, incorporating the ghoul into the undead. Now the zombie gained a hunger for human flesh, and life, or undeath at least, hasn't been the same since. Zombies got fast in 28 Days Later, funny in Shaun of the Dead, and unavoidable in over a decade of The Walking Dead. Have we had enough? I've said only half joking that the only thing I'd like to see less than another zombie movie is a found footage zombie movie. But another thing that Romero's first zombie opus introduced us to is the sociopolitical horror movie. The zombie has been used to represent mindless fealty to the man, a metaphor for pandemics, blind consumerism, pretty much whatever you want it to be. A horror film, or any film for that matter, can't help but reflect the times in which it is made. Horror feeds on metaphor, and the zombie has been the most resilient metaphor within the genre. Night of the Living Dead couldn't help but reflect racism and social issues of the day, though George himself said he was just trying to tell the best story he could with the best local actors that he could find. But the state of affairs, socially and politically, can't help but be a sign of the times. As plentiful as screen zombies continue to be, there are still artists who find ways to bring new life to the undead. Train to Busan, the girl with all the gifts, Juan of the dead and one cut of the dead, all reanimated the genre with freshness and originality. Our guest is responsible for a great zombie novel that helps to shape the course of modern zombie stories. Max Brooks's World War Z gave birth to a scope and human and militaristic zombie storytelling we hadn't seen before. His gifts as a novelist are only a small facet of his talents, as you'll discover when we talk with him right after this. Coming soon to Dread, Ditched. Desperate to escape an overturned ambulance, a group of paramedics are trapped with violent prisoners. The group quickly discover that they are the victims of an ambush, with the perpetrators hunting them down one by one. Ditched will be available on demand and digital everywhere on January 18th. Pre-order on iTunes now. Ditched. So, Max, very great to meet you. Thanks for joining us. You know, life seems to throw strange curves during its course. It would seem as the offspring of performers uh, that your childhood dabbling in acting would continue and your career seems to have more embraced the literary world than the performing world.
0: Uh, Yeah, well, I guess that's... uh that's who really who I am. I think, I think the, the small acting roles I did was really just to please my mom. Uh, I wasn't, didn't really have a heart for it. And, you know, with any sort of art form, uh, you have to want it more than anything else.
1: That's for sure. Well, you had an amazing upbringing in that both of your parents, in addition to being terrific performers, were both really good directors, but your mom, sort of took a sideline, you are dyslexic, and she was quite helpful to your upbringing that led to your ability to become an author at maybe the cost of of a position in her career.
0: Oh, yeah. No, my mom put her career on hold to to save me from dyslexia. When I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s, uh, it was called a learning disability, not a learning difference, because it was a legitimate disability. Uh, the world was not set up for people with my kind of brain. Uh, teachers thought I was either, I guess, stupid or lazy. Uh, they kept saying, "Well, if he just applied himself, that 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 standard line." I had a teacher say to me, "You know, you can do this. You just don't want to do it." Uh, my mother somehow understood something was wrong. Got me tested at the Marion Frostic Center. Discovered I had dyslexia, uh, and then set. Upon, I don't know, maybe a ten-year new career, crafting a, an education program for me, which included fighting with my teachers every year, trying to get them <laughs> to understand that I was, you know, I'm working just as hard as the other kids, if not harder, uh, and also trying to find ways around it, like uh, audiobooks. That was a big yeah. one. um Typing, that was another big one. Untimed tests to reduce the anxiety. I mean, just, just a whole battery of ways to adapt. And if she hadn't, you know, the only thing you would have ever heard of would probably been, you know, Mel Brooks's fourth kid ODs. And that probably would have been it.
1: Right. (laughs) Uh, Well, the uh, irony of a dyslexic kid becoming a successful author is not lost on me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm probably the last kid in the world who should have grown up becoming a, a, a writer as a, career as a way to make my living. But I started writing when I was 13. My mother recognized that and she realized that if I wanted to do that for a living, I was going to have to fight for it. And so that's why she fought so hard uh, to get me educated.
1: When did you know that you wanted to write, that that was the pursuit that grabbed you?
0: I was about 12 or 13. I can't remember which. Uh, I think it was the summer between sixth and seventh grade. We were on vacation. I wrote a short story and And time sort of stopped, you know, when you're dyslexic and ADHD and mega OCD and your brain's always going a million miles an hour in different directions, you take notice when something forces your brain to slow down and focus on the here and now. And I knew this is what I wanted to do. So I just kept doing it. And I wrote every night for two hours a night uh, and never showed it to anybody.
1: Hmm. Who were the writers that influenced you, that, that excited you?
0: Clancy. Tom Clancy was the one. Uh, because I did not do well in school, but I was so starved for education. I wanted to learn any way I could. So I didn't read because I was scared of books. And the first book I actually just bought with my own money and picked up and sat down and read was Hunt for Red October. And I put that book down feeling educated as well as entertained. And I knew that that was the kind of writer I wanted to be.
1: Which shows up in your World War Z books, as well as uh, in Devolution, that you you majored in history at Pritzker College, right, before studying film at the American yeah. University?
0: Yes, Pitzer College. I, I majored in history um, with a semester at the University of the Virgin Islands in St. Thomas.
1: Ah, interesting. What, what part of history in particular, or is just world history in general, something that appeals to you?
0: No, the, the two world wars and the, and uh, decolonization, uh, that's another reason I wanted to be at the University of the Virgin Islands. Uh, it's one of the last, the Caribbean is one of the last few places in the world where there are colonies left over from the, the 16th and 17th centuries. So I wanted to see it with my own eyes and study it. And uh, that part of the world still has a very important place for me.
1: Well, you are are a senior fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. Tell me what that organization is and what a senior fellow does.
0: The Modern War Institute is a think tank, which was recently put together mainly from um, active duty army officers uh, and then bringing in other civilians like me. Our job is to study warfare. How do people fight each other? Uh, And that doesn't necessarily mean things that blow up. Uh, Like, for example, what I do is I study asymmetric warfare, which is how to fight without firing a shot, which our enemies are a generation ahead of us because of this. And it all goes back to Desert Storm, where we fought that war specifically on 24-hour cable news. So we could say to the world, don't mess with America, because if if you meet us on the battlefield, we'll pound you into dust. Now that's it was not, all about flexing muscles. It was. It was about deterrence. Deterrence through a public show of strength. And we thought that would work. Unfortunately, what it did was it taught our enemies, if you're going to kick America off the world stage, don't do it on the battlefield. Find ways around it. So in a sense, uh, Desert Storm turned into our Maginot line. And so our enemies and our frenemies and anyone who wish to do us harm has been spending the last thirty years developing asymmetric means like cyber warfare, uh, economic warfare, information warfare, and most importantly, how to combine them all, how to use one to help the other into a cohesive doctrine. The Chinese have a book about uh, unrestricted warfare, and the Russians. Well, we don't. We call it. We used to call it the Garazimov Doctrine, but that's that's inaccurate. But it's really just called fighting in the gray zone. And we're we're farther behind in that sphere than we were behind the Soviets in the space race in the 50s.
1: Does the US military pay attention to the Modern War Institute and the things that you discuss and talk about? Do you have access to the actual military uh, brass themselves?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, when we do our our seminars, we have four stars show up And they're listening and they're taking careful notes. I was on a panel where I interviewed the deputy commander of Futures Command, talking about not just what tools we have, but also what doctrine do we have or don't we have that needs to be stepped up. So yeah, there's a lot of listening going on and they'll, they'll invite anybody. I remember there was one at one of our seminars, we had a journalist, a civilian. I didn't know he was a journalist, but I knew he was out of place. He was, shall we say, a little flamboyant. (laughs) Not the military or, or national security DC crowd, didn't even wear socks. But he came up and gave a presentation on why the Chinese have bought Grindr, the gay tinder. Right. Because of their internet privacy laws or lack thereof, the People's Liberation Army can then peruse every single person on Grindr. And if they find a closeted general or admiral or senator, they will keep that in their back pocket for the day they invade Taiwan. Because then they can present that person with compromise and say, listen, you better speak out against Taiwan or the whole world is going to know about Eladio. So that's the kind of thing the Modern War Institute talks about. Everything from hypersonic missiles to the next generation of main battle tanks to why the Chinese own Grinder.
1: How did this interest in the military life begin with you? Uh, it's not what you would expect from the son of Mel Brooks and Ann Bancroft.
0: I think it's exactly what you would expect from the son okay. of Anne Bancroft. Uh, when you consider that, that they both lived through World War II and Mel yeah. Brooks was in World War II. Yeah. So remember, I'm a Gen Xer and most Gen Xers have baby boomer parents. And most baby boomer parents are a waste of space. Uh, They talk about the acid they dropped and the convertibles they drove and what a great time it was to be alive. That's not what I grew up with. My father and all his friends are greatest generation. So I grew up with stories of sacrifice, service. Where were you stationed? What was it like growing up during the Great Depression? One guy, Harry Lorraine, the memory expert, the magician, would talk about how his neighbor used to grind up chalk, put it in milk bottles with water and shake it up just as the milkman was coming by. So the neighbors would think they were rich enough to get milk delivered. So, and that, that is what shaped me. This, this white hot sense of patriotism, that this was a country who could allow people like my dad, who had his four back teeth ripped out because it was cheaper to extract them than to fill them. Right. I'm a millionaire.
1: Amazing. So, but what do you feel about the patriotism that certain elements of our society hide behind right now, what they call patriotism?
0: Well, they don't anymore. You know, that's the that's the one thing about the Trump era. You know, it used to be that my side, the liberal side, were so ass backwards that we handed the mantle of patriotism and law and order and all the foundations of civilization to the right wing because we cater to the radicals on our side. And for at least two generations, the right wing were the party of decency, order, America, flag and country. Well, now, thanks to Trump, that's all gone. Now, now they've they've torn the mask off. They've embraced a man who was a a Russian dupe. They murdered policemen on the steps of the Capitol. So there's there's no more. There's no more. uh, farce when it comes to who's the patriot and who's not.
1: Well, talking about that uh, in terms of your work as an artist, as a novelist, um, you bring so much of your knowledge of military history into World War Z. Tell me about how you conceived of that project in the first place and how you took uh, modern warfare history, military history, and injected it into a, a zombie story.
0: World War Z came about just answering one of my own questions, which is if there was a zombie plague, how would it really go down? Because when I watch my favorite movie of all time, I think Dawn of the Dead, to me, Uh the most interesting scenes are when they're watching TV and they're watching society fall apart. And that just fills me with questions. What is the government doing? What are other governments doing? You know, the problem I have with so many zombie stories is they're micro stories in a macro setting. Uh, Zombies are big. Zombies are global and it would be trying to learn about how a global zombie pandemic goes down by watching most zombie stories is like trying to learn about World War II from watching Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> so I was trying to tell a big story, but how the hell do you do it? So when I was a kid, my mother gave me the audiobook of Studs Terkel's The Good War changed how I thought. And I thought that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be the Studs Terkel of uh, zombies and I'm going to write an oral history of a zombie war. And when it came to military setting, it goes back to Clancy. I wanted everything to be real. You know, what made Clancy so special was he took that Ian Fleming, uh, psychosexual bullshit and threw it away. He said, I'm not going to write fantasies. I'm going to write realities because Clancy as a nerd, as a wannabe, as an outsider looking in, thought that the real world was interesting enough. So he was a nerd and he did his homework. And that's what I wanted to do because If I'm gonna write about a real zombie pandemic, I'm gonna write how would it really go down? The zombies are the only thing that's fake. Everything else has to be 100% based in reality. Uh, And so every single event in World War Z is based on something that really happened throughout human history.
1: So you kind of had a trial run with it with a sense of humor with your zombie survival guide, which
0: came a few years earlier. Yeah, well, and that almost killed my career because of false advertising. Oh. So, yeah, well, the world wanted to, pr- my my reps, you know, my agent, my late agent, Ed Victor, God bless him, gave me, you know, he gave me my career, but really to his dying day, never understood who I was and I, what I did. Uh, he and the people at Random House, uh, they tried to position Zombie Survival Guide as Mel Brooks Jr. writes a comedy book about zombies and I begged them not to do that. I said, if you do that, it will destroy it and it will destroy me mainly because that's not true. And sure enough, that happened. Uh, the, the mainstream media reviewing it, uh, eviscerated it. They said, this is, this is a horrible book. They promised it's a comedy book, it's not funny. Well, duh. <laughs> and then my people, the, the, the horror folks, the sci-fi folks, the people who I come from hated it because they thought Mel Brooks's brat was taking a giant dump on something they loved. Mm-hmm. So I had to throw it all away, their marketing plan, crumple it up, throw it in the fire, and then reinvent my own marketing plan and reintroduce myself to America and reintroduce this book. So thank God that Fangoria gave me a chance to do an interview. Thank God Dee Snyder and Debbie Rashawn let me go on Fangoria Radio. And thank God for Greater Talent Network and my new personal appearance agent, Mike D'Andrea, who said, I'm going to put you on the road and you're and you can give actual zombie lectures. And if they laugh, that's great. But you're not laughing. You're taking this shit seriously, which is what I did. So I clawed my way into this niche of proving that I'm really into this.
1: Well, what is your relationship with the with the genre, the genre press, and the genre fans and the like? Because you've said you're a fan, but you've also said you're an anti fan. In oh
0: in yeah, oh well, sense. yes, I I am an anti fan in that there is a section of the zombie fandom, not not the majority, certainly not anymore, but there is a narrow section that thinks a zombie apocalypse would be cool, hmm. and I don't do that. I don't do zombie porn. I don't think it would be fun. Uh, I remember I was on some panel at Comic-Con and some other guy was doing his, he was promoting his new zombie TV show. And he said, I think the zombie apocalypse would be kind of fun. I just picked up my chair and moved to the other side of the table. (laughs) Because zombies are not fun to me. They're terrifying. This all comes from a childhood fear when I was, I think, 12 or 13 and snuck into my parents' room when they were out to dinner to watch cable TV, maybe see some boobies on Showtime, whatever. And ended up watching, I think it's called Hell of the Living Dead. Hmm. You know, it's, it's the Italian one where they go to New Guinea.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm 12 years old. And I'm watching flesh being torn apart and eaten. And that set me on this path. So when I sat down to write Zombie Survival Guide, I was not thinking, oh, wouldn't it be awesome if this really happened? No, I was thinking, if this horrible nightmare actually came true, how could I survive?
1: And put it onto paper.
0: And then I, and by the way, when I first wrote Zombie Survival Guide, I didn't think it would be published. You know, I wrote, it, I wrote it in the 90s for me as an exercise. Wow. I stuck it in a drawer. Oh. It was Y2K that, that got me sort of thinking about it. And I, I didn't think anybody would be interested. I think that's <clears throat> the secret to its success was I didn't write for an audience. I wrote for me. And it was only after I was on Saturday Night Live for a couple of years and knew my time was limited there that I got into Ed Victor. And, you know, being on SNL hurt me also because they thought, well, how are we not going to market you as Mel Brooks's son being on SNL? This has to be a comedy book.
1: Right. Well, tell me about that experience on SNL uh, and how you went there. And your time there, because it seems that you don't embrace the comedy side of it.
0: No, I was miscast, but you you can't turn that down. What happened was uh, I was struggling as a writer, trying to make it, nothing was happening. And, you know, I think the worst part about being young, certainly for my generation, maybe millennials and Gen Z have it all figured out. But when I was coming up, the scariest part about being young was not knowing what I didn't know. So I asked for a meeting with a family friend, George Shapiro, who was Jerry Seinfeld's manager, Andy Kaufman's manager. And I just wanted to sit down with them and ask him, I'm just going to sit here's what I'm doing. Tell me where I'm screwing up. And we started to make small talk. And he said, where are you living? I said, you know, I'm, I told him where I was living. He said, why are you living in that neighborhood? I said, it's where I, where I can afford. He said, what are you talking about? You got money. I said, I don't have money. My dad has money. And He said, what? <laughs> not taking money from your dad. I said, of course not. How am I ever going to be anybody if I'm being dependent on my parents. And he thought about that and he goes, have you written comedy? And I said, I have a sketch packet. My agent made me write for this Martin Short sketch comedy pilot that never went anywhere. He said, I'm going to give your sketch packet to Lauren Michaels. Lauren Michaels read it and liked it enough to hire me. So I got the job, but I was totally uh, miscast. And when it was time for them to to show me the door, uh, I did not complain because I think that, the two best things Lauren Michaels ever did for me was hire me and fire me.
1: <laughs> so uh, all three, uh, you and your mother and your father all have won Emmys. Yours was uh, your time at SNL. Um, that's kind of a unique trifecta, family trifecta, isn't
0: it? Well, I mean, me saying I won an Emmy is kind of like my dad saying he won World War II. I mean, he was on, <laughs> he was on the team. I mean, the truth is that Emmy was a long time in coming. Because what had happened was, you know, SNL was on the way out in like the mid-90s when they basically had to fire everybody and uh, re-jigger it. And they brought in the whole new cast. They brought in the whole new crew. And that brought SNL back. And then when 9-11 happened, which I happened to be there my first year, the show got its just reward. But the truth is, I mean, let's be honest, I'm holding on to Adam McKay's egg. So anytime he wants it, he's more than happy to come to my house and pick it up because it belongs to him and not me.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. What was it about the zombie in particular that that inspired you? I mean, it's kind of a huge part of what your career has. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, it it doesn't obey the conventional rules of horror. You know, the conventional rules of horror is that begins with a very simple premise that I think most of us don't even realize because it's so obvious, which is we are the dominant species on this planet. We reign supreme. So how is anything going to screw with us? Well, the answer is very simple. It can't screw with us, but it can screw with a few of us. Mm -hmm. So that is the premise of almost every horror story I have ever read or seen, which is how do we get a few sheep away from the herd? That's the device. How do we get them away from the herd so then the wolves can pick them off one by one? And that usually involves bad decisions. You know, hey, you heard about the summer camp? We're like, there were those murders. We should like totally go. That's usually, you know, or we've got a distress signal from this planet. Ash, we can't go to this planet. As a matter of fact, we can. Oh, crap. You know, <laughs> we can't close the beaches. We depend on the tourist dollars all ways to separate us from the herd. Now zombies blow through all that and they attack the herd directly. That's what's so terrifying because I can watch any horror film, as, and especially as a kid, and know that I wouldn't make those stupid choices. So I can go to bed at night being like, well, I wouldn't go in the water. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't do this stuff. But what if the sharks came out of the water in the millions and ate everybody on Amity Island and I was just minding my own business? That's the scary part about zombies is they come for you, whether you make good choices or bad choices, or as Robin Williams once said in a a sci-fi special, the Martians are coming and they don't care who's naughty or nice. (laughs) And
1: there's a relentlessness about the undead that you can't do anything about.
0: Well, and that, that goes back to Jaws when he says it's an eating machine. All it does is swim and eat and make little sharks Uh, or the Terminator, which I consider to be a horror film. Sure. You know, Michael Bean makes that speech, you know, it can't be bargained with, it can't be reasoned with, it doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. I practically cracked my pants when I first heard that. <laughs> so the relentlessness, the mindlessness, the ability to multiply. Also, and this is one of the key factors of why I write about zombies. Is what the military calls second and third order effects. All right. Let's say I do everything right. Let's say I know the zombie plague is coming. I get out of dodge. I got my zombie fort. I'm ready. I may die without ever having seen a zombie because their main threat is chewing through those threads that hold together first world existence electricity, sewage running water, vaccines, cops, fire departments, refrigerated food, all the things that allow us to pretend that we are self-sufficient. And when they chew through that and we are reduced to a medieval existence, you're lucky to live past 30.
1: So you've mentioned Dawn of the Dead as your favorite movie of all time. Um, What are some of the other zombie movies in particular that, that, That charged you up.
0: Shaun of the Dead, I think, is is, uh, the second greatest zombie film ever made. Yes. Because it's one of the only ones that that take the baton of social commentary from Romero. You know, the problem is you have a visionary like Romero. He comes along and he gives his social commentary a coat of paint. And all the followers see is the paint. And that's Mm -hmm. why everybody who came after Romero just made... uh, topless woman scuba diving and here comes a zombie and a shark. <laughs> no, nobody saw anything deeper except Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and said, wait a minute, Romero's not talking about zombies. He's talking about us. He's telling the story of us. And that's what I love about Shaun of the Dead. If you want to encapsulate the entire generation X of Great Britain, the post Margaret Thatcher, post-Cold War We're young. We're British. What does it all mean? It's all in that movie.
1: Well, did your father have an interest in the genre as well? I mean, Young Frankenstein is such a loving portrayal of the universal monsters and the like. Did did you ever share those moments over horror movies together?
0: Not a bit. Not one bit. (laughs) Uh, No, no. I share. I mean, when he first read it, he said you first read Zombies of Rival God, he said, you got to cut this down. It's too big. You got to cut it down get to the jokes. I mean, he didn't know what I was trying to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But his greatest teaching was his war stories. I mean, I wrote this because I am Mel Brooks' son, but not the funny man Mel Brooks that everyone worships. I wrote this because I'm the son of a World War II combat veteran who said, don't think about the big stuff, the, the romantic things about the guns and the tanks. That's not what killed most of us. He would say things like, what killed most of us were splinters. An artillery shell goes into the forest and bursts. You're never going to get shrapnel. What you're going to get is 10,000 splinters of trees that become a shotgun blast in every area. Or he t- says to me things like, uh, I grew up with the story of, you got to take off your boots, when it's 10 degrees below zero and you're going to sleep in the snow, you got to take them off. you got to rub your feet. you got to put bacon grease on your feet and then put two pairs of socks on. Don't put your boots back on. You'll wake up without your toes. Those little details, not sexy, not romantic, but life-saving, is what I poured into the zombie survival guide and then later World War Z
1: which which shows i mean the veracity of those stories being told takes them to a different place than what we're used to in a genre adventure so to speak i was fortunate enough to work for your dad when i wrote the sequel to the fly to i wrote the fly 2 what i came up with was something much more socially conscious and more interesting than what we ended up having to make as a teenage horror movie but I discovered that your dad was so much more than the funny guy we're all familiar with. Extremely well-educated, well-read, and knows dramaturgy like nobody. You know, yeah. the movies he's produced from Elephant Man to Cronenberg's The Fly and the like show a side that, that the public doesn't seem to know much about.
0: Well, this is another thing I learned from my dad is you have to own and manage your image. And he understands this because just like the public wanted to shove me in the category of Mel Brooks Jr. writes comedy zombie book, uh, he was very conscious that when he executive produced Elephant Man, The Fly, Francis, 84 Charing Crossroads, all these really important, wonderful arthouse films, he knew that if his name was anywhere associated with it, it would destroy them. He knew that his reputation that he built up was toxic because then people would be expecting a funny ha Mel Brooks comedy. And you can't control that. So he knew for a man to do this, for anyone in show business to have the confidence to take your ego out of the equation and say, if I want these movies to work, I must be invisible. Show me anybody else in Hollywood that does that.
1: Yeah. Pretty amazing. And it's interesting in that uh, the studios, when they do a Stephen King adaptation, that's not a horror movie, like Stand By Me, they hide his name in the credits. They don't put his name in the title as they do on the horror films.
0: They were Yes. And you have to do that. And so my dad knew, because nowadays you always see like, so-and-so presents, you know, from the people that brought you. That's the part I always love. They don't even say director, writer, producer. They just go from the people. Uh, (laughs) So I'm like, wow, from the craft service guy who brought you this movie. He knew that that Mel Brooks presents the elephant man would kill it on its first day. Yeah.
1: Where's the yaks? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Your work as an actor, as a child, you, you still continued doing it for a while in animation, doing a lot of voice animation. And is that... Something that you're interested in uh, because I know you've written graphic novels and comics and the like. And are those areas of particular interest to you?
0: It's always interesting to me. Uh, but I obviously don't have time to be a voiceover actor anymore. But thank God I did because it gave me a wealth of contacts when I was making the audiobook for World War Z. And like I said, audiobooks are very important. Audiobooks help me get through school. And I knew when I made the World Wars, the audiobook, it had to be an all-star cast. It had to be a, a 1930s radio drama. So I begged them. I said, please give me enough time to write letters to actors and reach out. And what saved me a lot of time was I already had some of these contacts from my cartoon work. I could reach out to some of the directors, the writers, the casting directors and say, hey, do you know this person? Can you get me in contact with this one? So that made a huge difference. So thank you, Batman Beyond.
1: <laughs> uh, well what about graphic novels tell me about the difference in writing for uh, that format than than writing fiction and then we'll talk also about uh, the the great wall and your other screenwriting work
0: you know uh writing comic books is a completely different art form and because if you do your work well if i do my work well i don't know about anybody else but if i write a good script you, you almost never see it. Maybe I'll write a line or two of dialogue and that's all you'll see. But I put a ton of my work into the action description. And I know some, some comic book writers aren't like that. Some of them just write like one or two lines, maybe just one line, giving the artist complete freedom. And that's great. I mean, you know, there's no right way to do this. But for me, I, I see the picture so clearly in my head, I need to be extremely detailed. <clears throat> and then when I do something like the Harlem Hellfighters, the true story, African-American soldiers in World War I, I have to take on another job, which is to be the artist's research assistant. And that's tough, because if you want to be historically accurate, you actually have to do even more research than if you're writing a historical novel. Because if you're writing a historical novel, you can only put as much detail in as you want to put it. You know, a character walks into a room in 1917. If the room is not important, don't mention it. But if you're writing a graphic novel, your readers are going to see that room and you better make damn sure that that room is accurate. So you have to, I do, I have to go back and research what did everything look like back then? Because I can't let the artist do it because he's busy. He's got the the hardest job. He's drawing and I can't distract him and say, oh, go look this stuff up. So doing Harlem Hellfighters, the moment I finished the script and turned it over to the the artist, Kanan White, my job was to furnish Kanan with just a tsunami of historically accurate images.
1: Now, I know Will Smith's company optioned that. Is anything coming of that in the motion picture format?
0: I don't know where they're trying. I mean, the, you know, <clears throat> I can tell you what we're trying to do now. I don't know when it's going to happen, but we're trying to pivot to do the Harlem Hellfighters as an audio drama.
1: Oh, nice.
0: Yeah, because it's, it, it makes sense. It's an ensemble cast. And also, what taught me to do this was doing the last audiobook for devolution, because it happened devolution came out just as the pandemic hit. So in right. order to do the audiobook, Random House had to send us all audio equipment to record from home. Right. And I realized there's absolutely no reason that we can't do this for the Harlem Hellfighters. We can send them equipment. They can set it up, their assistants can set it up, whomever. And then they can send it back to us because that's what I did. They sent me a big box. I set up my DOS boat studio under my stairs. <laughs> when it was all over. I packed it all up. They gave me instructions. And then I just shipped it on back.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's not lost on me that your uh, graphic novels, comics, have been G.I. Joe and Harlem Hellfighters military war stories.
0: Yeah. Well, G.I. Joe was, was interesting because it was the first time i was working for somebody else and you have to compromise there and that was that was rough because you know i wanted gi joe to grow up because it was one thing to love gi joe in the 80s when i was a kid during the reagan era when we were all macho and saber rattling but we never actually went to war it's very different to do gi joe real american hero when actual americans are fighting and dying in iraq and afghanistan so it was interesting to do that but know that ultimately at the end of the process, I'm working for a toy company and their goal is to sell toys and they don't want controversy. They don't want letters. They don't want, you know, any trouble. They just, you know, this comic book, let's be honest, the GI Joe franchise is a commercial for the GI Joe toys. So I got a little, I got a few stuff, a few, a few good licks in there, but ultimately this is theirs.
1: Well, you've kind of been your own boss for most of your career uh, for everything. Uh, but as a writer for hire, as in The Great Wall, which was this huge would-be Hollywood production by a Chinese production company, hoping that they were going to cross over into the international success of American movies. Tell me about that experience. It had to be different from your your run-of-the-mill screenwriting experience, if there is such
0: Ye- a thing. Yeah, well, I didn't write the script. I don't i, I... Did I get credit for that? I I don't know. I what I did was I created the world. And that all goes back to Thomas Tall. What I was I for Thomas Tall, I was his Captain Kometo. And who Captain Kometo was was the guy working for Admiral Yamamoto on the Pearl Harbor operation. Yamamoto and Minoru Genda came up with this great idea. But who's going to actually ground it in reality. Who's going to figure out how many planes, how much fuel, how are the, how many torpedoes, how much crew, how much food we got to pack on board for this journey to Hawaii and back? Well, that's me. Thomas Toll would come to me with these crazy, wonderful ideas and say, if they were real, like World War Z, how would you ground it in reality? And that's what I did for him. So like for the Godzilla King Kong franchise, uh, I wrote the Bible for Monarch. Because Thomas said, if there was a real organization, who would have founded them? What's their oversight? Where does their budget come from? What's the oversight process? Where would they be based? How would they recruit? All these really hardcore Tom Clancy questions that I answered for him in the Bible I wrote. Same thing with Great Wall. He said, I got this idea, a Marco Polo-esque type of guy. He gets to China and he sees them building this huge wall. And he says, "What are you doing?" And they say, "You gotta, get, you gotta help us and finish the wall because they're coming." So my job is, if this were real, at what point is this happening? Why would he be going to China? Uh, what would be the realities on the ground? Where would he be coming from? Wh- what was Europe like? So that's what I did on Great Wall, you know. And I th- and I gave him a basic outline of how the story would go. But you know, all the all of the the wonderful, beautiful cinematics of of the blue ladies with the feathers, bungee jumping with spears. I never could have thought of that in a hundred (laughs) years.
1: Well, let's talk about adaptation. Um, World War Z was a big success, but a very troubled production that went through a couple of directors. You can see the stylistic changes um, uh, uh, as the film plays. What was your experience with that? I mean, watching something of yours, being put into other people's hands. And you chose not to be the screenwriter, I believe.
0: I think the choice was mutual. I don't, I, I think if <laughs> I'd been like, I want to write the script, they would have been like, that's cute. That was never on the table. I see. You know, they asked me, they said, who would you, who do you, they said, we've got a couple writers in mind. And they gave me these names and they said, what, it's just in your opinion. And the first guy out of the house was J. Michael Straczynski. And I'm like, are you kidding me? One of my heroes, yeah. Jay Michael Straczynski? Uh, so no, I was not part of that and I was very lucky in that I had really good friends when the movie came out because, you know, they went and did their thing and I was not involved at all. And then when the movie was about to come out I started seeing the trailers and I got kind of down because, oh my God, that's not my book. Uh, <laughs> my wife, God bless her, said, you need to, you need to call Frank. Now, Frank is our friend, Frank Darabont. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The man who created the Walking Dead TV show and was subsequently fired from it.
1: And the second writer on the fly, too.
0: Yeah, and the second writer. I know. Yeah. So Frank Frank knows what it's like to be kicked around by the biz. So I call Frank and, I, you know, oh, my God, Brad Pitt and the hair and the pancakes. And he said, Max, you don't know how he, he, he slaps some sense in it. He said, you don't know how lucky you are. He said, you have your book. You have your side of the story. If anybody wonders what your original vision is, there it is. He said, take it from a guy who's written God knows how many screenplays, had them brutalized by someone else in rewrites, and then had that movie put on the screen with your name attached to it so the world thinks that's your vision. He said, you don't have to deal with that. And then he was so cool. He sent my concerns on to a friend of his who wrote me back and he said, this guy says, listen, the reason I'm assuming you sold the movie rights in the first place is the reason we all sell the movie rights to our books. It's to give our book a second life. Who cares what the movie's like? As long as people are reading your book, isn't that what matters? What are you complaining about? All the best, Stephen King.
1: Exactly. He has always said, you know, uh, when people say, oh, look, they fucked up your movie, your book so much with this movie, he said they didn't touch my book. They made a movie that stands on its own or not. And my book is still here unscathed.
0: That's exactly right. And I feel I feel very lucky and I don't feel like I have any right to complain about anything because, you know, my only regret is I didn't thank Brad Pitt. You know, I was. I was the, the snotty purist writer at the rap party. Uh, I did meet him halfway. He came over. God bless him. Now, Brad Pitt could have kicked me in the balls and been right about this because the world was rooting for him to fail. Remember all the production? Oh, yeah. They were like, this is this is the pretty boy's water world. Here we go. Yeah. And they did He won. He had he had the biggest movie of the year. Uh, and so he could have been right to say. Hey, nerd boy, you can go to hell. But instead he comes over to me and he goes, so did you cringe? (laughs) So he was being cool. And the least I could do was be cool back and say, you know what, Brad, if I was anybody else, but the guy who wrote the book, I probably would have loved it. And he said, all right, fair enough. But what I should have said was, thanks, buddy. Thanks for plucking my book out before. By the way, he optioned it before it even hit the shelves. Wow. So it debuted on the bestseller list because of his interest.
1: Wow. Well, he, he's a good guy. The, uh, I've had uh, a little bit of contact with him when I was producing Unbroken, which Angelina directed. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, our experiences with him were always terrific. He seems like a real mensch.
0: He, I think he really is. From what I've seen of him, he's nothing but a stand-up guy. Who, by the way, I mean, whether the movie had anything to do with my book or not, I can tell you as an actor, that guy took himself seriously. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I've gotten some back channel reports from the publicist who said that, I mean, Brad starved himself to do act three, which was then shot and cut. Oh, I mean, geez. He's freaking De Niro. The fact that he would, that he would go that deep into a zombie film instead of blowing it off is just more props to Brad Pitt.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, like I said, I think he's a pretty terrific guy and a, and a, and a great conscientious artist as well. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about devolution and moving away from zombies and into Bigfoot, again, with expectations uh, all dashed about what a Bigfoot movie might be, because yeah. it's about a utopia gone wrong, um, cut off from the rest of the world. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of that and, and where you wanted to take that.
0: You know, Bigfoot, Another Childhood Fear, Terrified, grew up with all those like 70s faux documentaries, Bigfoot Mysterious Monsters, Leonard Nimoy in Search of, scared the hell out of me. All the sun classics, yeah. Yeah, scared the hell out of me. And I wanted to use that childhood fear to talk about some very important adult issues. Adult issues like globalization and over-reliance on technology. And when I say over-reliance, I don't mean not doing it. I'm all for big tech and I'm all for going forward into the future, but having a backup plan and having a kill switch in case it doesn't go the way you want it to, right? So we've gutted in the post-Cold War era, all of our insurance policies against the future going wrong. And I wanted to talk about it. So why not have an eco-community, a high-tech, high-end eco-community based on the best green technology in the world? nestled in the Cascade Mountains, where these sort of urbanites can live a rural faux existence. They can live with all the urban comforts. They can have telecommuting to work, tap on a phone. The drone delivers their groceries fresh from Seattle. The one road brings the gardener and the handyman and the electric driverless van to fix your solar panels. So it really is the best of both worlds. Until the world comes crashing down and Mount Rainier erupts, and these people are cut off because the volcano blows towards Seattle. And they're also forgotten because they're outside the blast zone. No one's looking for them. And these overeducated, overpaid David Sedaris fans don't know how to change a light bulb. <laughs> and I can say that because David is a very good friend of mine. Uh, <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> but that's, that's what I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be people who are at the very top of society's pyramid with all its luxuries and pleasures and advantages. And once they're ripped away, once they're reduced to potential food for another life form, it boils down to Ira Glass and Fran Lebowitz versus Bigfoot.
1: <laughs> yes, very soft intellectuals.
0: <laughs> yeah, people who are, and, and I have a, you know, these are my people, these are the people I grew up with. These pampered parasites, who have absolutely no idea how the world works, but they're so smug and they just live off of the fruits of other people's labor. And they have jobs that could only exist if somebody else is keeping the lights on and the water running. Right.
1: And and then Bigfoot shows up. Hey.
0: <laughs> A pack of very hungry, very big Sasquatch creatures is driven off their, their foraging ground by the eruption. And it's... Sp- it's a fall and they need to stock up on calories <clears throat> and they're not good. They're not evil, right? It's neither.
1: They're doing it's, what they are there for.
0: They are animals hunting to stock up calories for the winter it is that simple. And these people happen to be the greatest source of food within the area.
1: A, a great jumping off point. And in, in making the, the metaphor of the utopia work in a horror story as best it can play. Yeah, it's, it's a great book. Now, you also seem to have a lot of interest in the technological world, in technology. What about Minecraft? Tell me about your Minecraft movie, your yeah, Minecraft but, novel.
0: Yeah. My, my Minecraft books are just like Harlem Hellfighters, just like Bigfoot, just like Zombies. You know, on the surface, it may look like I write uh, about a lot of eclectic subjects, but the truth is I only write about one subject, which is adaptation. I'm always writing about an individual or a group or uh, a system which is going along its merry way and then crashes into a whole new reality and must adapt to survive. Same thing with Minecraft. Uh, My character wakes up in this Minecraft world, doesn't even know they're in this Minecraft world, just knows they're in a, a world where nothing is familiar and washes ashore on an island and must live a Robinson Crusoe existence with the new rules of this new world. And the reason I chose to do this is because I do believe that Minecraft may be the single greatest teaching tool since the printing press. Wow. I really believe that because as someone who struggled with education, I, I saw its flaws very early. And our education system is based on the Prussian model. Which was designed for the industrial revolution, it was designed for standardization, which whoever could master, it could master the industrialized world. And it worked. It worked for a couple hundred years. But the industrial revolution is in the rearview mirror. And what we used to teach kids memorize, regurgitate, ticking clock, be like everyone else, get a good grade, move up to the next level that's not the economy that they're going into. They're gonna to have to learn new skills like, how to be flexible, how to think for themselves, how to create, how to recover from failure, how to take risks, how to individualize. That's the new workforce. And Minecraft teaches you all of that, as opposed to all the video games I grew up with, which were Prussian video games, right? In most video games, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And the faster and better you do it, the more points you get, the more points you get, the more you get promoted, the more you get promoted, you win the game. Boom. Thank you. 19th century education.
1: <laughs> so you're talking about growing skills as opposed to firing skills. Yeah.
0: Yes. I am trying to teach kids all the skills on how to be a, an intellectually robust and flexible person in this economy where change is now the norm, where there is no more job security, where we're all going back to being the kind of pushcart salesman that my, uh, my great grandfather was when he got to America and had to learn Norwegian before he learned English. So he could get the herring from the Norwegian fisherman. So then he could <laughs> push carts. This is who we are now, people. You remember uh, the movie Reality Bites? Oh, and yeah. Ethan, Ethan Hawke gives that wonderful Gen X whine. What am I supposed to do, man? Work in a factory for 20 years dude, you should be so lucky. Those factories are gone.
1: (laughs) So who are the authors that you read now?
0: You know, I read an eclectic group of authors. I'll go, I'm not a snob for anybody. You know, I just reread Aesop's fables. Uh Holy crap. After all these years, after all these thousands of years, what proof that we as human beings do not change? You know? Same show, different costume. Yeah. So I just I just reread those. I also, at the same time, read uh, another book by Guy N. Smith. Guy N. Smith is the master of 1970s British pulp horror. I love all his books. He wrote Attack of the Giant Crab books. He just yes. wrote one about killer baboons. And God damn it, he finished it too soon. <laughs> I'm so mad. And this is coming from an adoring Diane Smith fan. I'm in it. There's the killer baboons. And then the book just like ends. And I'm like, are you kidding? You've got 200 more pages here, guy.
1: (laughs) And what are the movies you watch Uh, or series?
0: Oh, God. Series wise. Well, I'm married. So I watch whatever we're what we have to compromise.
1: Yeah. And you have a son, right?
0: I have a son. He's, he's 16. He is the world's biggest Charles Bronson fan. Oh, wow. He, uh, he loves every Charles Bronson movie. He is writing a play, a one-man show, uh, The Life of Charles Bronson, More Than a Vigilante. Wow. Last night, we, the two of us watched, in, You're in the call it, called? I think you're in the Navy now. Yeah. Super and Eddie Albert because it was Charles Bronson's first movie. So wow. we, we had to watch that.
1: The Evil Men Do is one of my favorite of the Bronsons.
0: I'll see if he's seen that because, yeah, he's he's read Bronson's autobiography. He's seen the documentaries on him. So, yeah, he's he's deep in crafting his one man show.
1: Right. So what is keeping you busy right now?
0: Oh, God, a lot. Um, I have to ramp up for another book right now. And for me, that always takes a lot. You know, there are some writers who God bless them. I wish I could be that. Some writers just sit down and just start going. Uh, it, for me, it takes years. It takes years of research. It takes years of, of plotting it out. Um, and that, so I'm in, I'm in full pre-production right now. This is an audio podcast, so no one will be able to see on the side of my office is a wall of whiteboards.
1: Uh.
0: In which, in every book, for me, the most important whiteboard is the one with the questions on it because every question I answer leads to more questions. Then when I got them all answered, then I know I'm ready to start making my outline.
1: So you outline pretty heavily before you get into the detail work.
0: Oh yeah, oh I first first research, then outline, then synopsis. I will I will write maybe a 100-page synopsis of where this book is going before I sit down to write it. Uh, cuz that's just who I am. I'm just neurotic that way, I need to know where it is going. And like I said, research is everything because sometimes that will dictate where you go. You know, doing devolution, I had to physically make the weapons. I had to grow the crops. I had to go to the place in Washington state where I put my village to make sure my characters couldn't just walk out. And I couldn't even walk in.
1: (laughs) How long did it take for devolution to uh, complete itself?
0: It was about three or four years. You know, I originally sold it to Thomas Tull at at uh, Legendary as a movie. Wow. And, and we started to get into it, development. They hired a writer. We got a script. I didn't, I wasn't thrilled where the script was going. It was sort of going in the direction of a 1980s Golden Globus movie. So when, oh, it, when it sort of fell out of, of production or, or of development, I didn't shed any tears. But then my wife, again, you know, who I owe everything to, she pushed me and said, tell it your way. Go to Thomas Tull, ask him for the novel rights back. And so that's why in the thank yous of the book, I give him a giant Bigfoot size thank you for giving <laughs> the novel rights back.
1: Now, your wife is a playwright. Um, do you talk horror stories? Do you share, do you inspire each other when you're working or do you keep that separate?
0: <clears throat> no, no, we always we always throw uh, ideas past each other. I mean, I, I always say to aspiring writers, one of the most important things you're going to need to have is a critic that you can trust because you don't want to just write without any criticism before you show it to the world. You've got to have some feedback, but you don't want to open it up to people you don't trust because they might steer you in the wrong direction. So I'm very lucky. I got my wife who knows exactly what I want. And then I've also got uh, a great editor who knows what I want. So between the two of them, I feel like I'm in good hands.
1: Will there be a devolution movie?
0: Well, I can tell you there's a devolution script. It's at legendary. I, uh, I know there's a, there's a writer director on board, uh, New Zealand guy. We actually spoke, spoke on zoom, seems very earnest and very smart and really wants to make this a great movie. So, you know, I wish him all the luck in the world.
1: Well, Max Brooks, thank you. I wish you all the luck and I thank you for the work. I'm a huge admirer and I appreciate everything you do socially, politically, as well as creatively.
0: Thank you so much, Mick.
1: Thanks for doing it. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.